time together as we come again to the study of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Before we get into our study of chapter 17, we need to remember a few points that we periodically make as we go through this study, and that's the fact that God has progressively revealed himself and his purpose in redemption all the way through the scriptures. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we see God's determined will to rescue, to redeem a people that are called by his name out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe in the earth. And I believe that that's literally true. So when we come to a study of Revelation 17 and 18, and we're talking about Babylon and what Babylon represents in the religious, economic, and political spectrum of the last generation, what we're talking about is the last day, the last generation. This is going to be the condition of the world we're living in. And as we view uh, with a great degree of interest the, the digression of the human family, the paganism, the demonic activity that there is in our world today, in our nation today, um, we're mindful uh, that we could be living on the cusp or the edge of that very period of time. So the things that we're going to talk about tonight are, are, are going to be very uh, pointed and they're going to be very um, apropos. They're going to be very appropriate for our generation to think about. Last time we were together, <clears throat> we talked about the character of the damned. We talked about their impenitence. The, we, we talked about the fact that even though they're under the scourge of divine judgment every day, and, and, and pain and suffering and loss and death on every, on every scale. Yet, they are described, these individuals are described as people that repent not, but actually blaspheme the name of God, the character of the damned. Well, tonight we're going to see the, that character being lived out or being um, reflected or radiated through the Babylonian government. And we're also going to get to see a glimpse of the character of the redeemed. Now, in chapter 17, and there came one of the seven angels. Remember, the last seven angels that are pouring out the vials or the bowls of God's judgment, they've already executed their plan. They've already poured out these divine judgments. One of those angels... Uh, comes out and and uh, talks with John, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Last time we mentioned this uh, in, in closing, that harlotry or uh, prostitution is often symbolic of idolatry. All the way through the Old Testament, you see uh, when Israel slid into idolatry, uh, Jesus would refer to them as a harlot, as a prostitute. And so it is. We find in this context that um, Babylon is 
is issuing uh, a great influence upon the world. And this, uh, this woman is, is sitting upon many waters, which in verse 15 we'll find out that the waters are nations. And Babylon is representing the final apostate world system. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth, now these are the rulers in the earth, the governmental heads uh, of nations, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication or idolatry, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. In other words, political alliances under the intoxicating influence of the Antichrist himself. This is a very real person. It's a very real plan that Satan has had all the way from the beginning. Remember, Satan has always tried to frustrate God's uh, design for redemption. He's always attacked particular families, particular tribes, particular nations in order to frustrate the design of God in redeeming his people. But he's never been successful at it, and hallelujah, he won't be. He can't be successful in overthrowing the will of a covenant-keeping God. And I want to come back to that a little bit later. <clears throat> but here we find this uh, political alliance, this intoxicating influence, this demonic deception. Verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now remember, biblically, the color scarlet represents royalty, nobility, wealth. These are, uh, these are very uh, elaborate times that are being portrayed. And, uh, and uh, notice the beast, I, I believe... Uh, it, which is a direct reference to the Antichrist, as in chapter 13, verse 1, and um, chapter 14, verse 9, and chapter 16, verse 10. Uh, I wish I would have had time. Uh, one of the brothers of my church says, you know, Jeff, if you would, have, if you would write down those references, uh, we could look them up later. I'm sorry I didn't have time to do that. But, uh, but that's a great suggestion, and I apologize for not being able to write these out for you or uh, have the time tonight to go back and read them. But just for your information, the Antichrist is described as this beast. And remember, early on, I told you that there's two words that are translated beast in the Greek language. One, of course, is a living creature. Uh, the heavenly uh, beasts are described as zoe, the, the living, living creature. And uh, I wish Zoe was here. She'd say, hey, that's me. <laughs> you know? uh, but the other one is Therion. And Therion is a destructive, damaging, devouring beast. And that's what the Antichrist is. There's nothing good about him. He's evil from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And his, his hatred is not so much against you as it is against your God. His war is with God. He hates God. And he demonstrates that hatred 
through the persecution and oppression of God's children in the earth. All the way through our study, we found that to be so. But notice, full of the names of blasphemy, blasphemy. You know, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 speaks of him blaspheming the name of God, speaking ill or evil of the name of God. And Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. We could also go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but we're not going to do that tonight for time's sake. But he has these seven heads and ten horns. And we, we, have, uh, we have been uh, uh, coming across this several times in our study of Revelation in chapter 13, chapter 16, uh, the seven heads and, and ten horns. And, and, and we've tried to describe that for you, but we're going to let the Word of God describe it. This chapter tells you who they are. You don't have to guess. It's not, it's not an issue of, well, this is my personal opinion. God tells you who they are in this very chapter, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, <clears throat> the seven heads and ten horns. Every time I read this, I, I can't help but think about the Daniel's vision in uh, da- Daniel's um, interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Because remember that Colossus had two iron legs which represented uh, Rome, eastern and western Rome. And then the feet had ten toes. And the toes were a mixture of, of iron and clay. Very weak. Very malleable. You know, clay and iron don't really mix. So in this weakness, uh, in the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, if you recall that, a stone was cut out of a mountain, not with hands, and it smote the image where? In its feet. So something is really declaring the end of the Gentile kingdoms, the end of the fullness of the Gentiles according to the word of God. And I believe that that stone is Christ. So I just want you to know where I'm coming from. But every time I read the number 10, I think about those 10 toes. Well, here's 10 horns or powers or governmental authorities. And verse 4, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. Now, this is a picture, uh, again, of extreme wealth and and influence in the first century uh, culture. Here she is. She's decked out with purple and scarlet and, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations, exactly, and filthiness of her idolatry or her fornication. If you're taking notes tonight, write this one verse down and look it up later. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 7. Because Jeremiah describes this very, the very character of this woman, the golden cup. That is in her hand, the cup of influence, the cup of wealth, the cup of uh, uh, great popularity, uh, power, exactly. Here it is, and upon her forehead, and by the way, let me make a mention of this, upon her forehead. It didn't say in her forehead, but upon her forehead. In the first century, Roman prostitutes would wear a head, they were required to wear a headband with their name on it. 
they, they, they uh, according to the law of Rome, they had to be identified. Well, this it, it fits right into that culture. Here she has, if you will, a headband. And her name is there. And her name is Babylon. Babylon. Confusion. Babylon. Deception. Babylon. The world, uh, the world system of the last day. And upon her forehead, headband, a name was written, Mystery, and notice the comma, notice the, the punctuation here. Mystery, comma, Babylon the Great, comma, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, period. See, there's three titles that are attributed to this world government. These titles remind us of the origin of Babylon, don't, don't they? The, how in Genesis chapter 11, uh, the Tower of Babel, the, the citadel of rebellion against God and God's law and God's purpose for mankind. All of that is represented in Genesis chapter 11. And when God confused their tongues, he named it Babel, confusion. And that's what reigns in the last days. It's confusion, confusion, confusion over when life begins, confusion over um, uh, the role of a man and a role of a woman. Confusion over what is worth going to war about and what's not. Confusion. That's the name Babylon. And it is a mystery. And the word mystery is mysterion, which means that which cannot be understood apart from divine revelation. In other words, God has to show us what it means. That's why this chapter is so important, because God shows us the meaning. But here, this, here is this entity, this world government, and this world church, and this world dominion. And it's all guided by confusion. They're confused. And I saw, verse 6, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. Oh, listen. This goes back to Jeremiah 51. Drunk with the blood of God's people. Persecution, oppression, opposition. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The marturions. The word marturion, from which we get the word martyr, means to witness by blood. Uh, don't don't think it's going to be easy the rest of our journey you know i called out the song we are passing away tonight on purpose been thinking about that you know what what are we going to have to see what are we going to have to endure uh, before the coming day of jesus christ that's the question we need to be asking am i ready a am i going to be a faithful witness a am I going to be one that would deny Christ under pressure? Don't sit there tonight and think, oh, no, that would never happen to us. Because we don't know until we get to that point. But I want you to, I want you to think of, of one quick point on, along this line. Jesus did not die a martyr's death. Well, Brother Jeff, I thought he was a witness by blood. Oh, yeah. But he didn't die 
a martyr's death. He died a sinner's death. He died alone. And the reason he died alone on that cross, remember, uh, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died alone. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He died our death upon the cross. Don't think about Jesus as being a martyr. He died our death. He died as a, a, a sinner against God, as one rejected by God himself. So that you and I would never have to be alone in our death. I think that's why we need to think about the martyr's death as a sacred honor. Because we're not going to have to face it alone. That's his guarantee. So this Babylonian governmental figure, this entity, is against the saints, and that means the separated ones, the holy ones, the hagias, the ones that are uh, described later in this chapter, the character of God's redeemed. She hates them. Somebody says, well, <clears throat> uh, we've, we've got an abundance of hate crimes today. Well, this is a hate crime deluxe. Because Babylon will always hate God and God's people. So she's drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now that word admiration is not to admire as in a respectful manner. But admiration as to wonder why she has been given such authority. Why has she been given uh, th this, this great uh, ability to persecute God's people and to make them suffer? Have you ever thought that way and wondered why? Why is there evil in the world? Have you ever been asked that question? Oh, if God is so good, uh, why is there evil in the world? Haven't you ever heard that? I've heard it a thousand, uh, <clears throat> I'm trying, uh, dozens of times. Because in our rationalization of God, we're saying, hey, if, God, if there was a God and God was good, he wouldn't allow evil to exist. But did you know that's not true? I always point them to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, in the life of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph and how his own brothers sold him into slavery. And how he suffered uh, uh, for a period of 17 years. He suffered in the land of, of Egypt. And, and uh, at the appointed time, God raised him up to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh. You know the story, right? right? Well, when Jacob died, the brothers thought that uh, Joseph was going to take it out on them and, and, and forget all about his kindness toward them. But remember what he said. He said, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. To save much people alive. Oh, oh, oh. 
He said, am I in the place of God? That's, that's the point I wanted to make. Am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. To save much people alive. Place. Am I in God's place? Place indicates destiny. Place indicates destiny. So the destiny of Joseph that was planned by God before time began was that he would not be overcome by the evil. But God would actually use the evil to accomplish a good purpose. Does that sound like Romans 8.28 to you? It does to me. We know that all things work together for good. To them that love God. To them who are they called according to His purpose. Joseph is a grand example of that. Well, brothers and sisters, in the last generation, when you see so much evil, and it's worldwide. Remember, this is not, this is not geographically limited. This is a worldwide entity. Babylon is a political, religious entity of apostasy and blasphemy against God. And, and they spend most of their time persecuting God's people, oppressing and opposing God's people because of their hatred for God. And you, you and I in this generation can look at that and say, well, if God was so good, why is He allowing this evil to happen? When we look and see what's happening in Ukraine today, if God is so good, why is He allowing that to happen? I'm going to tell you there's a sovereign purpose involved. There's a sovereign purpose. We may never know that here. But we can trust the word of God to know that God, the God that we're here to worship, the God who is in charge, the God who is upon his throne tonight, has a sovereign purpose in allowing that evil to exist. It's important for you to know that. So, John... <laughs> is reminded of that, and he's reminding us of that, so he's wondering with great admiration. Why? And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery, the mysterion, the mystery of the woman, and the beast, the therion, the, the, the destructive uh, uh, entity that carried her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns, that's another repetition. Seven heads, ten horns. We're fixing to find out who they are. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, the abyss, the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. Now, you need to underline that word perdition because it's a very specific term. It means eternal destruction going into perdition this is exactly what jesus taught in matthew 7 13 and many other places um, this perdition and i, I I'm, I'm going to uh, say this hoping that it won't confuse anyone but i want you to remember this god is not only glorified by the salvation of his saints. He's also glorified. In the judgment. Of those that are not his saints. 
He's glorified in their condemnation. He's glorified in their just judgment. All right, keeping that in mind, John is leaning upon the reality of God's sovereignty. And John is going to rejoice in that in a moment. But here is this great mystery of the woman uh, and of the beast that carried her, which hath the ten horns. The beast, verse 8, that thou sawest was and is not and, as, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And, and they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder, wonder, wonder. <coughs> Excuse me. Whose names, catch this now, whose names were not written in the book of life when? When? Go ahead. You, you, from the foundation of the world. When they be, behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Brothers and sisters, God is not sitting in heaven with an open book and a pencil. So that when you and I are regenerated or are converted, that's when he writes that name in the book. Have you heard any of that teaching lately? God's waiting for you to act so he can write your name in the book. But wait a minute. This is a book that was written before the foundation of the world. Does that change anything? Does that help us understand election? Does that help us rejoice tonight in the supremacy of God and the salvation of sinners? Does that make us understand when Jesus Christ went to the cross? He didn't go to the cross to give all mankind a chance for eternity. He went to the cross to pay the sin debts of those whose names were written. <coughs> mm -mm. A lot of preaching that. Well, these are individuals whose names were not written there. Now, the question is, can their name be added? No. They can't. And can I submit to you tonight, they don't want their name added. Does that make sense? It's not as though, uh, uh, in a recent conversation with an individual, uh, he had never heard the word election before and predestination. And, uh, and I was trying to share with him the gospel. And uh, he said, he said, but what if there's this person that wants to be a child of God, that wants to go to heaven, but his name isn't in the book? Have you ever been asked that? Brothers and sisters, if someone truly from their heart desires to be written in that book, which, by the way, we all should, that's a tremendous evidence that God's grace has shined in that heart. You see it? Do you understand? God 
isn't waiting for man to receive him in order to write his name in the book. This book was written before the foundation of the world, and these individuals' names are not written in that book, and they don't want it to be in that book because they have the mark of the beast, not the mark of Christ. They have the stigmata of, of the beast, of the devil, and they're serving the devil. In verse 9, here is the mind which hath wisdom. Here it is, the exp explanation. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sitteth. Now, I believe that this is speaking about Rome. Because remember, ancient Rome was built on seven hills. It's called the city of seven hills. And here is a picture of Rome. <clears throat> and this makes very great sense when you consider that Rome was in power at the time of the writing of this book. And verse 10, and there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. I believe that this represents seven world empires, beginning with Egypt, going to Assyria, then Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, then of course the, the Empire of Greece, followed by the Empire of Rome. There's your six, and then the Antichrist, the last ruler. And he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. I believe that this is a, a, a verse <clears throat> that refers to the reviving of the ancient Roman Empire. I, I, I believe I can prove with the scriptures that uh, the kingdom of the Antichrist is going to have the earmarks of Rome. It's going to have agreement with Rome and the religions of Rome. And, 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 and the eighth uh, could, and I believe it does, refer to the, the Antichrist himself. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. You know, again, here's the ten toes of Daniel's vision, I believe, <laughs> in Daniel 2.41. Uh, the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now that one hour, I believe, is, is symbolic of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation that we keep running into, you know, the 42 months, the 1260 days, the three and a half years. This is the last half of the Great Tribulation, the last seven years. <clears throat> these have one mind, all of these kings, these Gentile kings, have one mind and shall give their power and strength to the beast, the Antichrist. And these shall make war with the Lamb. Now catch this, brothers and sisters. These shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them. Hallelujah. For why? why? For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Now watch the characteristics of the saved. And they that are with him are called and chosen. Right? faithful brothers and sisters that's a, to me a beautiful verse 
Because in this day, God is going to have children. Somebody says, well, there's no Christians here because they've all been raptured to glory. Well, who are these? Who, who are those? Who, who are the martyrs? Who are the oppressed and the persecuted? I believe it's Christians. Now, let me, let me also say, I hope they're right, Brother Kevin. <laughs> I, 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 you know, the, the, the belief that uh, the church is raptured before the Great Tribulation, I pray they're right. Because I want to be in that number. But when I study the scripture, I, I see Christians being persecuted. Suffering. But notice their characteristic. They're called. Called how? That's the effectual calling of the Spirit of God. They're called. They're quickened into life. They're, they're chosen. Elect. They're not chosen because they chose God. But they chose God because He chose them. And not only are they called and, and they're chosen, now watch out for perseverance. They're faithful. Faithful because they're so good? No. Faithful because they're so strong? No. Faithful because they've got a good heritage uh, among the old Baptists? No. They're faithful because God is faithful. And he's holding them and making them strong. Isn't that wonderful? See, see, that's why we shouldn't be afraid. That's why we shouldn't be afraid of the devil. We shouldn't be afraid of the Democrat. We shouldn't be afraid of, 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 of politics. We, we shouldn't live in fear of COVID. Because faithful is he that calls you. He will also do it. Hallelujah. Verse 15, I've got to hurry. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This is the global community that we hear so much about today. You know, we had one president that said, I'm not a citizen of this country, I'm a citizen of the world. That's what I'm talking about. They're citizens of the world. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh. Doesn't that sound gross? And burn her with fire. You know what's going to happen? The Antichrist is going to turn against the ecclesiastical identity of, the, of Babylon because I believe he's jealous. He, he wants the worship himself. He, he wants himself to be worshipped as God. And here is this apostate church, and they're talking about another God. So he's going to wipe them out and take the place of God himself. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He shall sit in this temple showing himself that he is God. That's the Antichrist. He wants, he wants praise. Verse 17. Now, brothers and sisters, bear with me just a few minutes. For God hath put in their hearts. Catch it now. God hath put in their hearts 
to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast, which is the Antichrist, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. See, God's sovereign will is always going to be accomplished. It's, it's under God's sovereign will, brothers and sisters. And we can trust it. We can trust it to be for our good and ultimately for his glory. And lastly, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city, and I believe that's talking about Babylon, that great city which reigned over the kings of the earth. I believe this is the capital, as it were, of the Antichrist empire. Now, I want one cl closing thought. Contrast. Contrast with me tonight the characteristics of the damned with the characteristics of the saved. The characteristics of the damned are those that reject Christ, those that hate God, those that blaspheme, those that commit all kinds of idolatry and actually worship the devil. And contrast that with the elect of God who are called, chosen, and faithful. And I'm going to ask you a question. Who made the difference? Was it the will of the man? Or was it the will of God? Brothers and sisters, if it weren't for God's grace, every one of us here tonight would be devil worshipers. Every one of us would be in love with the global system of confusion and demonic activity. We would be drawn to it and rejoice in it. But praise be to the name of our Lord. By His grace, He has redeemed us. By His grace, He's called us out of that evil way. Let's rejoice in it. Thank you.